This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Arkansas 1st District Representative Rick Crawford. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Bayer Crop Science. Bayer spends $2 billion annually developing biological and chemical products, as well as digital innovations to enable farmers to use these inputs with more precision than ever. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Congressman Rick Crawford next. Nearly 40% of the food crops grown globally are lost every year to plant pests and diseases a difficult statistic to accept when looking at a rapidly expanding population. That's why Bayer works to provide farmers with tools they need to confront this challenge. Tools that include biological and chemical products as well as important digital innovations that enable farmers to use these inputs with more precision than ever before. Integrated Weed Management, or IWM, is the hallmark of everything Bayer does to help farmers protect their crops. Bayer has championed IWM for generations within the ag industry. In fact, Bayer invests over $2 billion in research and development for farming solutions every year, and a major part of that is into more solutions for IWM. That investment has nearly doubled the spending of their closest competitors. To find out more about how Bayer is working to help farmers fight resistance, visit Bayer.com. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Arkansas Congressman Rick Crawford says his district and the nation needs the infrastructure bill to be completed. He doesn't care for the political process and the level of spending being proposed. Well, everything that we would like to see happen to come to fruition that would be beneficial to rural Arkansas and other parts of the country, uh, that rural communities much like mine, um, could have been done for a heck of a lot less than $1.2 trillion. I mean, I think that, that when you see that um, roughly 10% of that really has anything to do with what we consider to be traditional infrastructure, um, there's just so much included that... You know, we just think it's is irresponsible. Um, you know, we're thirty trillion dollars in debt. I guess what's another one point two trillion among friends? And then you know, we've got three and a half trillion in the reconciliation bill. So, you know, all told, we're bumping five trillion dollars in additional spending, and the and the White House continues to say that it won't cost the taxpayer anything. And so, if that's the case, why are there tax hikes included in it? You know, I mean, obviously, it's going to cost something. So what we're talking about now are, you know, taxpayer-funded um, goodies that, you know, somebody has to pay for. And it, it just, it's, it's mind-boggling to suggest, the administration to suggest that this isn't going to cost the American people anything. Of course it is. Um, I mean, it's going to cost the American people $3.5 trillion in the reconciliation and $1.2 trillion in the, in the infrastructure bill, and that's just on the front end. And that's not to, to give any kind of a account of, of what that's going to be in the out years. Thursday was a busy day on the House Agriculture Committee, as I understand, reaching out to uh, provide some additional data with regard to how cattle prices are established across the country and establishing a library from USDA. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Dusty Johnson from South Dakota led that initiative on USDA published market data basically helping to improve price discovery in the, in the cattle market, you know, so that's, 
that was the uh, the the gist of the uh, Cattle Contract Library Act of 2021. Um, it's not new. It's modeled after a, a you know a port contract library that's currently maintained by USDA. So the idea is not necessarily new, um, but this one would apply to the cattle industry, and and um, so it it really has to do with addressing uh, helping address the spread between producer prices and what's being paid at the grocery store and then helping really a, a more transparent effort in terms of price discovery. Does it solve the problem of price discovery in in the cattle market or is this one step among many? Well, I think this is one step among many. I mean, you know, you you know back in the old days it was fairly simple. You know, you you take your cattle to the sale barn and and and, and that transaction was as as transparent as it gets. And, um, you know, so in that sense, um, now we have, we have different factors that come into play and, and, you know, there are a lot of questions being asked when you see, um, you know, the prices being paid at the grocery store versus what, uh, you know, the cattle producers are actually receiving, you know, at the farm gate. And there's some questions about that spread. So, um, this is just one of, I think, probably, you know, many, uh, ways to help address that. And then quite frankly, I think, you know, if if you are long actuals, you probably need to think about being short futures, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you got to go out and play the futures market. But it does mean that probably you could employ a risk management strategy that's ideally suited to your operation, whether that be a livestock operation or a row crop operation, whereby you can put uh, some protection in place through options. Options are a fixed cost; you don't have to make margin calls. And then when the markets move against you, then you're in a better position um, to to benefit. Uh, or to at least have some level of assurance that they're not going to be such an adverse effect that you wouldn't be protected. So I think there are a variety of tools that can be employed to help improve the price discovery model and, and, and you know, the, the cash flow of the producer. So the question then is how much government needs to be involved. When I talk to cattlemen, they say they're ready for some sort of an answer, but they admit that mm-hmm. the cattle market is not the same in every region of the country, and there's not one simple solution. No, that's right. And I think that what, what I think needs to happen, and the government is going to play a role to a certain degree, and that's because the government should be good at collecting data and disseminating that data with regard to price. Um, what are the markets doing in, you know, Waterloo, Iowa versus what are the markets doing in Russellville, Arkansas? You know, and there's going to be some difference there, you know, and so, uh, when you have um, USDA reports on variety of different markets throughout individual states at different sales and so on, I mean, um, you know, you can probably, you, through some fairly extensive analysis, you can come up with some trends that may be consistent across the country, but there's going to be some unique factors in different geographies. And so the USDA, that's probably one of the things that they should be good at. It's kind of a I guess you might consider that to be a wheelhouse skill set for them. On the other hand, I think most producers, whether you're a cattle producer or, or a, you know, row crop farmer or whatever, I think they would probably feel more comfortable relying on market factors as they see them taking place. But then the question remains, where are you collecting that data? Where the, where's the analysis coming from? Are you doing that on your own? Or are you finding sources out there uh, in the private sector that are good at it that can that can report that data and help to identify market trends and things of that nature. Where's the best place and when 
to take my cattle and things like this. I mean, so those are questions that, that I think the marketplace can answer, but I do think that, that, um, as a sort of a, a clearinghouse for data, the USDA is probably still a good source for that. Congressman, uh, plenty of discussion on the Build Back Better reconciliation bill, and, and many oppose it because of the price tag. But there is one element that has been discussed for agriculture, including funds for conservation spending and for climate smart agriculture. Whether it comes through Build Back Better or whether uh, through another means, is this an area that you support? Well, it is, and I have historically supported that. And you look at the past two farm bills where there's been a um, you know, considerable amount of attention paid to conservation initiatives, and that had bipartisan support. If you recall, we had um, uh, Colin Peterson, who was the ranking member on, uh, on the, the last two farm bills, he was very passionate about programs such as uh, Conservation Reserve Program and things of that nature. So the kinds of things that farmers are doing just as a matter of course and the investment that's there to help those things take place and take shape out on the farm and out on uh, working lands and so on, those programs, we support that. That's good for the environment. It's good for those producers, and it's a good investment on the part of taxpayers to help uh, in, in improving in environmental quality and so on. There are a variety of different programs. I, I, I use CRP as an example, but there are many others, and EQIP is one, CSP is another, uh, and several other different kinds of uh, um, programs that are geared toward environmental stewardship. But I would also point to the fact, and I think most farmers will agree, that you know, ag producers are inherently... Um, Good stewards. I mean, they have to because they, you know, they derive their livelihood from the land that they work. So it's in their interest to be environmentally sensitive. And so, you know, you have really kind of, you know, in Washington, you have environmental activists, but on the farm, you have active, active environmentalists. And that's the real difference. And I don't know that we necessarily need to fold that into a three and a half trillion dollar initiative when those issues had already been addressed and continue to be. Through um, through farm bills and through existing programs. So, do we need to wait for a new farm bill before funds are added <laughs> in that direction, or is there a means at which that could be accomplished uh, to add on to the current farm bill? Well, so I, I guess the question would be: do, Is there some sort of an emergency that we're not aware of that requires, you know, spending billions billions more in conservation for for agriculture applications? When we did that in 2018 to address climate issues, environmental concerns, and, you know, um, I really think that these issues ought to be addressed in the context of the Farm Bill. You know, so many times we hear about things, people are reticent to address ag issues for fear that they might be forced to open up a new farm, open up a farm bill. And, you know, I agree. I don't think we need to open up a farm bill to address these issues at the same time, you know, that, that authority resides in the ag committee and, and, and the subject matter expertise resides, uh, within USDA. And so do we really need to be, um, doing things, uh, extraneous of the existing farm bill and the provisions provided in the most recent farm bill, 2018, and we're going to do a farm bill next Congress. So we're, we're close enough, I think, to, the reauthorization at this point that we probably ought to have just waited until the next farm bill before we started to address additional conservation programs because I think we've already done a good job 
addressing you know conservation environmental concerns in the previous farm bill. We're beginning to hear some news from the Biden administration with regard to trade, and there has been discussion about China. Nicholas Burns, the president's nominee uh, to be ambassador to China, suggesting uh, even this past week that the U.S. needs help from the EU and perhaps Japan to confront China on the global stage. You were outspoken recently uh, suggesting China's influence in Latin America. Can you expand on your concern there, sir? Uh, yeah, everything that's taking place in our hemisphere, driven by China, is a threat to us economically, politically, and, and possibly even potentially militarily as they start to ramp up their presence in our hemisphere. And I have had conversations with ambassadors from Colombia, Ecuador, uh, Paraguay, Uruguay, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Panama, uh, and have traveled to, to many of those countries, Brazil. And what I know is in the absence of U.S. leadership, in the absence of U.S. presence, and not even necessarily in the government context, but in, in, in the private sector, in, in investment dollars, opportunities for, for consumers to avail themselves of U.S. goods, we are woefully underrepresented in these in these countries and that gives these you know these nations very little choice if if china's going to come in and throw money at them uh, how can you expect them to say no and in many cases their their economies are um you know tenuous to some degree and they're looking for investment and and i'll give you an example is you know the metro system around the city of bogota um you know that could have been something that the united states played a role in but we just couldn't beat China's deal. Why is that? I mean, you know, it, a lot of it has to do with the regulatory regime that we put on American companies when, uh, you know, they go to do business in another country. They may be under that regulatory regime in a given country, but they're also under the U.S. regulatory regime because that's the standards that we apply. That makes it difficult for us to compete with a state-owned enterprise, uh, which is an extension of the Communist China, China Communist Party, that goes in, for example, and offers uh, 5G under the flag of Huawei or ZTE. And where are the American companies doing that? Well, heck, we don't even have 5G rolled out across the United States uh, completely. So we're having a, a, a difficult time competing. That's just on the on those basic levels. So I, I gave you an example of the metro in Bogota. We're looking at Huawei and ZTE in places like Brazil, uh, Paraguay, uh, Peru. Paraguay is a critical ally of ours, and we don't have a heck of a lot of, of real solid relationships in South America. Paraguay is one, Colombia is another. We need to be really down there and, and, and showing a presence and trying to incentivize U.S. companies to be a part of those economies, and that will benefit us economically. It will benefit us strategically as a pushback to China, and that's why it's so important that we get these ambassador positions filled. Those ambassadors in a given country are the key and interlocutors for um, trade deals. And every country that I just listed off, every one of them, wants a trade deal with the United States. And they're in the process of making trade deals with China. But our, our process takes so long to get things done that it's very off-putting. And it's, it's confounded by the fact that in many cases we don't have confirmed ambassadors in these countries. And that was a problem in the previous administration. It'll be a problem in this administration because that that tells that country that 
we're really not that concerned. Uh, you know, we will put a, you know, a deputy chief of mission or we put a charge affair or an acting ambassador. And that's a statement in and of itself to those countries. And they say, you're really not looking out for our best interests. You're really not that concerned about the relationship that we have with you. And that's going to be an impediment to trade deals in the future. And these, every one of these countries that I talk to, all of them want to trade deal with the United States. So you mentioned the word espionage as a part of your concern. Do you see that as a real mm-hmm. threat? I see it as a threat not only in these countries that I mentioned, but throughout the hemisphere. And I see that as a threat here in the United States. I see it as a threat in Canada and Mexico. Everywhere that, anywhere that the, that, that the Chinese Communist Party can reach into, espionage plays a role in their activities. There's no question about that. They do it in a variety of ways. In some places, they can be a lot more aggressive, and that has to do with maybe the government structure or you know the regime in a given country. In the United States, they have to be a little more clever about it, and they, they use a variety of means to achieve their goals, and certainly espionage is one of them. And you know They engage in a lot of intellectual property theft, and contrary to what people think, China is not really very entrepreneurial. They have really built their economy on theft of intellectual property. And so um, they're always on the scout for new technology, any items that they can reverse engineer and put on the marketplace and compete with U.S. companies. That's what they're about, and that's what they built their economy on. Whether it's China or whether it's Russia or other country and threat, is cybersecurity something now that should be higher on our radar given the fact that we've had hacks uh, in not only our grain handling system, but also in our livestock processing? Absolutely. So cybersecurity is really getting everybody's attention, but that's really the tip of the iceberg. You're absolutely right. We should be more diligent in cybersecurity. That should be a priority for anybody, any business, regardless of whether that's an ag business or a financial institution, a hospital, a, a, a an academic institution, whatever business you're in, cybersecurity should be one of your primary concerns. But there are a lot of other threats that countries like China and Russia pose, and and they're very aggressive in it. And China is probably the most egregious in things that they do here in the United States with regard to some of the things that I mentioned. Intellectual property theft is one. They really um, go out of their way to try and acquire agriculture technology. There's a reason for that. It's almost a sense of urgency that they have. In fact, they have a, a country of about population somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.4 billion. Um, less than 20% of their land mass is arable. Um, they cannot feed and clothe themselves. They have to rely on other countries. The new twist in what China is doing is not only acquiring technology, but they want to apply that technology on land that they're purchasing in other countries. They're attempting to purchase land in the United States, but they're also attempting uh, to and, and being successful, quite frankly, in, in countries in places like sub-Saharan Africa and also in South America, so that they can essentially start to farm for themselves on other countries' ground. And that's going to be essential for them because they cannot feed and clothe themselves on their own uh, terms in their own country, so they have to rely on foreign sources. So it's not enough for them to import staple items like corn and wheat and other things. They want to go out and grow it and bring it back to China. 
And when they do that, they, they acquire land and sometimes in nefarious ways in certain countries. They lay debt traps and, and they, they acquire intellectual property and mineral rights and, you know, rare earth minerals and things of this nature in, in some pretty nefarious ways. And so, um, I, I'm, I'm really not overstating this. This is a, a, a very real threat that cyber gets the attention. But but the bigger threat are, are some of the things that I just listed, and not to mention the fact that we have some pretty big gaps, weaknesses, and vulnerabilities in our food chain that could be easily exploited. So what do you suggest, Congressman? Well, what we need and what I've been working on for the last couple of years is an intelligence capability within the ag world. And ideally, that would reside in USDA with Title 50 authority. That means they would be a full-fledged part of the intelligence community. Why that matters is because as I mentioned before in the conversation, you know, all of that subject matter expertise as it applies to agriculture, it resides in USDA. So it's really not enough to say, FBI, can you keep your eyes out for anything suspicious that has anything to do with ag? Well, they might not know what they're looking for. They might know what if, if there's a threat because they don't have the expertise to inform that. Uh, so they need to be a part of um, the intelligence community. So not only can they inform them uh, more effectively, but they can do better analysis. And 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 really, it doesn't have to be all about um, consequence management. It can also be about a proactive uh, posture in advance of a potential attack and reaching out to various uh, stakeholder groups to help them position themselves to be um, better uh, prepared for potential attacks. And, and, you know, USDA can do that, would like to do that. We need to give them the authority to do that so they can better protect our ag sector, our food chain. It appears that the partisan winds are blowing pretty strong inside the nation's capital, and there are two issues that are separate but somewhat related. Can this Congress, in this particular round, address the southern border crisis? Can this Congress address immigration reform or is that an after a midterm election round of issues to address? That is that is the $64,000 question. Can we? Yes. Will we? I don't know. And I, I, it, 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 it should happen. It should have already happened. We're, we're beyond crisis situation at the southern border. But when you talk about the national security threat presented at our southern border, not only is that a national security threat, but it's also a public health crisis. But the, the, the threat exists in that we have people coming across the border that we're engaging. We've already engaged a number of known terror suspects that were on terror watch lists, but those are the ones that we know about. What about the ones that we don't know about that have already gotten through? Those are the variables that we can't really speculate on, but we don't know what we don't know. But what we do know is this, that we have encountered a number of, of terror suspects, and, and they've had to been taken into custody. But the other thing is that we also know that we have people that are coming across the border essentially unchecked that are allowed to come across the border without any consideration for their health conditions and what that may mean for U.S. citizens as they cross the border and, and bring certainly the Delta variant. And we've seen surge numbers surge on the southern border. But when they not only that, but but they are being transported to other cities across the nation. So this is a very big concern that can be addressed, but hasn't been to date. 
Congressman Crawford, we want to thank you for taking time out of an awfully busy schedule there in Washington to be with us again on this edition of Open Mic. It is Open Mic, and Congressman, you have the last word. Well, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. I always enjoy visiting with you, and we are uh, we are ready to talk anytime. Our thanks to Arkansas First District Representative Rick Crawford, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Bayer Crop Sciences, investing and developing technologies like integrated weed management to help farmers produce more with fewer inputs to feed a growing world. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly.